to Planet Watch, big solutions to Earth-sized problems. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. Joe Jordan is on the road today and will join us at the end of the program for his usual ephemera and cosmic relief. That's coming up at the end of the program. Today on Planet Watch, a conversation about the movement to urge institutions across the United States to divest from fossil fuels. Universities alone hold billions of dollars of fossil fuel stocks in their portfolios. Students, faculty, and administrators are saying the mission of universities is incompatible with the negative impacts of climate change wrought by the fossil fuel industry. More with UC Fossil Free students in just a moment. But first, we have some information for you about Planet Watch and how to get in touch with us from Maya Rodriguez, our intern who's going to sit in for Joe for part of the show. Hi. You Hi. can subscribe to our Planet Watch podcast by going to planetwatchradio.com. A special thanks to Michael Zorwing for sponsoring the program on our local station, KSCO. And a special shout out to our other sister stations, uh, WCOM in North Carolina in Chapel Hill, Carborough. We'd like to also give a shout out to the folks at KDIRT, our newest affiliate, in Davis, a low-power FM station, Grassroots, there for the Davis community in California. And another hello to the folks in Reading who have picked up our show. Thank you for running Planet Watch. We'd also like to th say thank you to one of our longest affiliates in Columbus, Ohio, thank you for joining us and for tuning in to Planet Watch. Well, we top tackle all kinds of topics on this show from small to the large, and today we're talking about fossil fuel, but in just a moment we'll do that. Right now, I wanted to share with you a couple of news stories that caught our attention in the news in science and the environment, and Maya's going to start us out with her story. New research on gas exchange between the ocean and the atmosphere could have major implications for predicting future climate change. Scientists at the University of Exeter have found that an invisible layer of biological compounds on the ocean's surface can reduce the amount of carbon dioxide the ocean absorbs from the atmosphere. The ocean currently absorbs about 25% of all human-caused carbon dioxide emissions. However, this new research shows that the biological surfactants can can reduce carbon dioxide exchange by up to 50%. Furthermore, scientists have found that rising surface temperatures increase the amount of surfactants, so warmer oceans will have a greater reduction in gas exchange. The scientists hope that these findings will help monitor carbon dioxide on a global scale. We're learning so much about what we're doing to the oceans and how the oceans are really sustaining all life on Earth. This next story just happens to be about that as well. And it's about plastic nanoparticles. Nanoparticles are tiny pieces of plastic, less than one micrometer in size, micrometer. <laughs> and they um, could potentially contaminate food chains and ultimately affect human health, according to a recent study by scientists from the National University of Singapore. They discovered that nanoplastics are easily ingested by marine organisms, and they accumulate in the organisms over time with a risk of being transferred up the food chain, threatening food safety and posing health risks. Although barnacles are filter feeders and don't usually incorporate what they eat into their bodies, in this case, the plastic particles found in their bodies were so small they end up accumulating in their tissues. This has implications for all creatures up the food chain, including ourselves. Plastic pollution has become a widespread problem in the world's oceans as humans pump out more and more disposable plastic items, many of which end up in the sea, breaking down into these microscopic particles. Because these particles act like sponges for other toxins floating in the ocean that we have also dumped, they can be dangerous for all living things. And because humans, as we know, are often at the top of that food chain eating clams, mussels, and fish, we are likely now ingesting these toxic nanoparticles into our seafood, another reason to ban plastic straws and other plastic cups. We just went to a cafe and were horrified to find more and more plastic being sold to us. And the only, uh, I guess, opportunity to change that is to bring your own cup and just change your own habits because if you're in a hurry, p pretty much what you get is more plastic, whether or not you like it. So that's something I guess we could change by simply carrying lots of dishes in our car and not putting convenience over health. But on to another health issue, um, and it's very related because plastic's made from fossil fuel. There has been a movement afoot for a number of years to get universities to divest their investment portfolios from fossil fuels. Um, 
it turns out that these universities have billions of dollars invested in the fossil fuel industry. Um, so we're going to talk to two people who are very deeply involved in urging their university and part of a university-wide system called the UC system, one of the largest and most respectable in the country, to divest from fossil fuels. So we're very happy to have on board with us Tonya Brito-Bursi and Liam Ruff from Fossil Free UC. Welcome to both of you. Thank you for being here on Planet Watch. Thank you so much. Yeah, hi. Good to be here. Good to have you. So we'll start out with you, Liam. Um, tell me just a little bit about uh, how you got involved with this and why it's so important to you. Um, yeah, I'm a second year at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and I got involved with Fossil Free last year when I saw people in orange shirts um, being active on campus um, regarding the divestment of fossil fuels. And I had a friend who's a part of it, and he said, do you know that our university has $2.8 billion invested in fossil fuels? Wow, 2.8 billion is a lot. 2.8 billion. <laughs> right now it's 2.6, but at the time it was 2.8. A lot of money invested in fossil fuels, and I did not know that piece of information. And I was shocked, really surprised, a little bit horrified. So what I decided to do was to become more active in Fossil Free on campus. And what I discovered was a lot of things that I had really not thought about in the past, the amount of money institutions have and where they choose to invest it is a really big part of what industries are successful and what's happening in our economies and our environment. So it was really refreshing to realize that I have power as a student and to be active on campus on an issue such as where the University of California is investing their money. How about you, Tonya? How did you get involved and why did you get into this work? Um, well, I'm also an environmental studies major. I'm a second year. Um, and this is an issue that's really important to me because I learn about it every day. You know, climate change is going to really impact our future. And um, I became involved with Fossil Free UCSC um, about a year after I had heard about the campaign um, and really I got involved because I loved the people that were in the club. Um, they just really made me want to keep coming back, and it was really a community. Um, and I felt really empowered to be organizing with them, um, with these people who were so nice. And, um, yeah, it, just, it was a combination of feeling really passionate about the issue um, and wanting to be involved in that tight-knit community. And Maya... Feel free to jump in with questions if you want to ask any. I think it's great that you're doing this, and it, they say a lot of what is important about the, the climate change issues, that people do something, anything, because there's nothing worse than feeling like you're standing in an oncoming train just watching it come and not really doing anything to get us out of the way. So what you're doing is important, and I'd like to learn more about that. Yeah. So um, you said 2.8... Now, 2.6 billion in the UC system is invested in fossil fuels. What money do they have to invest? Because I think of investors, you know, as having money to play with in a big bank account. So, is it your tuition money? Is it the, is it uh, the retirement system's money? Do you, did you learn anything about <laughs> what money they are investing? Because you have to have a pretty big pool to be playing around with that big sums like that. Yeah. What's well, definitely complicated and not very transparent so sadly I don't really know exactly where that money is coming from but as Liam was saying about like realizing the power that we have as students I think it is important to understand that we are funding the UC and that you know even if we don't know what exactly what pool that money is coming from we are paying tuition and we should be able to demand where that money goes. Well, indeed, you know, and you're paying more and more as the years go by. It used to be that UC was free. Exactly. <laughs> and we, the taxpayers, funded it and now not so much. What is it, 13000 a year or something like that now? It's getting up there. Mm -hmm. It's way, you know, and when I was in 30 years ago or 40, <laughs> how long has it been? <laughs> it was, you know, 3000 a year. So right. it's really, it's, it's catapulted upwards. So I can see why you'd feel like this is my voice. I pay a lot of money to be here and I don't want it going to fossil fuels. Um, what's the power lever that you're trying to move? Like who has the decision making power at UC wide to 
decide to pull their money out of the fossil fuel industry? Um, specifically, that would be the regions. Um, there are some regions with more power than others. Um, Regent Sherman uh, is really involved with where the university invests their money. There's also the chief investment officer of the UC, Jagdeep Bushir, who, which we actually met with very recently and had a uh, interesting conversation with him, which we can talk more about later. Um, but we've sat down with these people. We've met with these people. Um, sometimes they're sympathetic. In fact, most of the time they're sympathetic, but rarely is there a productive conclusion after these conversations with them. It reminds me of the meeting UC just had with the town of Santa Cruz, which is, you know, overwhelmed in a lot of ways with no housing. housing. They said, we hear you, but we're still going to grow by 10,000 students. Thanks for your input. You know, mm -hmm. ah, wait a minute. Yeah, that's a <laughs> We that's really a want to change things. Similar. Yeah, we don't just want them to nod and feel your pain. They, they, you want them to do something. You said you'd get back to that conversation about uh, what the investment officer, basically, of the university-wide system said to you, but I would like to hear how that <laughs> went because you went right into, you know, the fulcrum of power of who mm -hmm. gets to decide to pull that money out. So what did they say when you asked them to move it? <laughs> well, it was a really exciting day to be there in his office and actually talk about um, the issue and really awesome to have him listen to us and see our faces and meet us. Um, but yeah, ultimately, I've, I came out of the meeting feeling like Jagdeep knew that climate change was a problem and that it was happening and that fossil fuels are at the base of that problem. Um, but he talked a lot about timing of investment and divestment and um, basically asked, or asked us to wait. I mean, it was, yeah, it was kind of disheartening, um, but definitely got to hear his perspective from the financial standpoint. Um, and it was really exciting. I'm sure yeah. it was a job. You know, someone told him, maximize our investments so that mm -hmm. we can support the university. That was all they were looking at is how do we get the most money out of our investments. Most people who invest think that. And those who do conscious, socially conscious investing think differently. But do they have a policy about what they will and won't fund? I mean, that seems like they would have some limits to where they'd put their money Obviously, fossil fuels isn't outside of that, but are there other things? Because I remember during the divestment in South Africa movement, when I was in college, there was a huge movement to get the university to divest from South Africa because it was right in the heart of apartheid. Mm -hmm. And the students didn't want their money going to support a regime that was just, you know, literally making Africans' lives miserable, or at least most of the Africans in South Africa under that regime. Um, and they finally did yeah. under a lot of pressure after years. Uh, so I, I wonder if he, they, he talked anything about where they, their limits lie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, as you said, it's very similar. Uh, the UC has divested from South Africa during apartheid and they divested money from private prisons um, a few years ago. So there has been divestments from uh, morally risky sources of profit in the past. One aspect of why fossil fuel is different that uh, the chief of investments gave us was the large amount of money in fossil fuels. And like you said, he has a job to do. He is making money for the UC, which is, you know, understandable from his perspective. That's his job to do. But they have so much money invested. His response is that this money will be brought out of fossil fuels over a long period of time, whereas the goal of Fossil Free UC is trying to get this money taken out in a shorter period of time with a statement regarding the importance of not investing in these really harmful industries that are, you know, painting a very bleak future for a lot of people. Yeah, and also pushing full divestment instead of small incremental parts over a long period of time. Yeah. Do you guys know if there's a way to track if that... Even if what he's saying, he wants to go about it slowly, divesting and in small steps. Is there a way to track that that would be happening? Basically, mm -hmm. just through statements that they release. Um, yeah, I don't really know about... Yeah, it's a good question. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it's very hard to tell what 
where the UC money is going because it is a little bit all based on what they want to tell um, the public through public statements. Uh, at least that's my knowledge of it. And I've got a question for you. Uh, you there Let was me so introduce who this okay. is. This is Steve Coulter. He teaches UC Santa Cruz. And so as a faculty, um, he is with his colleagues. The Academic Senate voted to divest at yeah. UC Santa Cruz and um, made a statement. And I believe the chancellor is in support. But it's not up to the individual universities to actually divest. It has to do with the regents. They have to implore the regents to do so. That so, is correct, yeah. yeah. And, and I heard that there, recently there was some major victory on your, uh, that, that your group was partially responsible for. Could you talk a little bit about what that was? Yeah, um, yeah I can talk about that a bit. Recently, the UC sold about $500 million of their fossil fuel investments. And at first when we saw the statement, it was really exciting. We were a little bit unsure of what this meant if this was a step towards complete divestment. And essentially, it's a step in the right direction, but it's a drop in the bucket out of the remaining billions of dollars they have invested. Although $500 million is a lot of money, when you're investing billions, it's still a relatively small portion of that investment. So we're happy to have that victory, but we still have to keep on putting the pressure on the regents and on the UC system in general that we have for the past four years. And did they offer uh, some kind of a reason why they had chosen to divest from that particular sum of money? Um, kind of. It was, from what we were told, it's completely economical. It was a good decision economically to sell those investments. Um, it wasn't actually based on a moral or climate justice, climate change-based re reasoning. Mm -hmm. And that's something that our campaign really tries to emphasize, um, especially with demanding a statement for full divestment from the UC, because um, we want the political statement of divestment, um, because it is a moral issue. And um, that's something that we really tried to push when we, we presented to the subcommittee of investments meeting recently. Um, a couple weeks ago and we had a five-minute presentation in PowerPoint basically about climate injustice and um, why it's a social justice issue um, as well as financially risky. Let's talk about the moral argument because some you know playing devil's advocate some people would say you know what's 2.8 billion dollars among friends it's a tiny drop in the bucket it's not going to force Exxon to close their doors. <laughs> Other right. people will just pick up those stocks and make a little money and so it's not going to really bring any pressure to bear on the actual production of fossil fuels. It's symbolic, but there, you know, symbolism, you could argue on the other side that symbolism goes a long way mm -hmm. toward other big institutions with money following suit. So what are some of those moral arguments? The, the financial ones are a little harder to make in this simply making money world, but what did you say to them would be your priorities and why, the why of this argument? It's, well, climate change disproportionately affects um, low-income communities of color. Um, and so that's something that we really have tried to emphasize. We have a social justice committee on the campaign. Um, and so, yeah, one of the arguments is just that right now climate disasters are happening and people who have a low income inherently aren't equipped to deal with those climate disasters. Um, and more affluent groups are larger leading, like larger contributors to this problem. Um, so that's why it's disproportionate. And, and what about the, talk a little bit about the, the psychological or emotional effect of being somebody who's younger. I mean, let's face it, that regions are mostly older men in general. Mm -hmm. And what happens with climate change, it may not affect them within your life, within their lifetime. But as college students, you have hopefully long, long lifetimes ahead of you. And you, in a sense, are disproportionately affected. Um, I'm just curious what, how students, you know, yourself personally or in general, if you could just talk a little bit about that perception of climate change because of your age. Yeah, we have three people, um, probably <laughs> under 30 in the room. I don't want to make any assumptions, but I guess you're all under 25 even. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, sure, I can talk about that. 
it's yeah it's a lot more of a real issue when you're looking at your future looking at career choices looking at school and then you realize there's an overarching will the future be what we know there's these serious issues of a changing climate and it really is something that makes you rethink what is normal you know when i am 40 and when i'm 50 is the world going to look the same as it is today physically or in a social aspect maybe not that's up in the air so as students it's really scary and really extreme because we do have the rest of our lives ahead of us with climate disasters and a changing climate being more and more apparent it's only a necessity to do something about climate change and the where we're getting our energy from how we're transporting ourselves it's a really real issue Mm -hmm. yeah and not only being young but being in college learning about environmental issues like I've chosen a field of study that I feel like is important um, which I feel like everyone who's going to higher education like has to do at some point and the fact that I'm educating myself about climate issues and then I still have to face like this bureaucratic stagnation of like oh like what does this education mean like I'm investing in my future but like what does that mean for me later yeah How about you, Maya? It's a weird thing to think about and talk about, I guess, because it's always in the back of our minds, I think. It's something that we've been hearing about. It's an an issue since we were really young. So I think that's a big key difference with me or us and older generations. Um, It's always been an issue since we're forever. It's it's something that's always been in the background, and I think that's different because it's for older generations, it's something that's they had to learn, you know, after they've already kind of set their beliefs and they already have their, um, you know, they already have their perspectives on life. And then this new issue is kind of brought up, you know, later in life, this is something that we grew up with. So it's more real to us. And then obviously the effects of it long-term will probably be more real to us because we're seeing all these projections from all these studies. And when you see all these years and by 2050, by, 2100 and it can be really like oh that's you know that's a fantasy to older generations for us that's very oh that could be us when we're you know 60 that could be our our children that could be our grandchildren so it's it's scary but at the same time I I don't know if I'm naive in thinking that there's there's hope and it's kind of exciting because I feel like we're kind of in this brink of um we're gonna be seeing a lot new uh different technology. We're, I feel like we're almost there to, we're going to be seeing so many different technologies. We're going to be seeing different automobiles on the road. We're going to be see, seeing different companies, um, different fuel sources. And I think we're going to have this political shift. And so it's kind of exciting. We're seeing a lot of change happening um, socially, um, politically, and environmentally. So it's kind of exciting. Um, but I guess there's a lot of the line. So it's, it's, it can be exciting in a scary way and in a hopeful way, I guess. What you're talking about is living with a certain level of uncertainty about your future. And, of course, no one's ever been able to predict. No one could have predicted World War II, you know, upending everyone in Europe's life or causing massive refugees to move around the world. No one, you know, 20, 30 years, unless they were a really good historian, could have said, yeah, I could see that coming. <laughs> they couldn't. So, you know, we can only kind of guess, and scientists are trying to help us guess. But sociologically and politically... How we react to it is a whole un- more unpredictable, perhaps, than the, what's the climate going to do. Mm-hmm. And that's where humans, you know, maybe if you're a historian, you can predict how people react to uncertainty and change. But we've never had planetary level of change happen. And mm-hmm. so I can understand as you in college going, well, what, what am I going to major in? Well, is that going to be useful in 30, 40 years? And studying science or environment or politics seems like it's right at the core of what's going to be needed. And you're practicing it before you even get out of college. You're trying to get change to happen and not wait till you graduate. So <laughs> that's commendable. I want to remind folks we're listening to Planet Watch. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman with a slew of people, Maya Rodriguez. We have Tonya here with us, Tonya Brito Bessi, and Liam Roof from Fossil Free UC. Steve Coulter, a faculty member who teaches a lot about climate change in his courses in the writing program. So we have um, people who have been either listening to a lot of interviews through 
Planet Watch uh, interning or people have been talking about this for quite some time, trying to get change to happen. And uh, it's slow sometimes, isn't it? And then maybe after the dam gets pressure behind it, it just breaks open. And uh, that's the real question is what is it going to take? <laughs> How many students? And could you talk about this referendum? It sounded like there was momentum behind all of the UC saying, hey, to the regents, we want to get out of fossil fuels. What happened with that? Well, we had um, teachers vote in the academic senate on um, basically like a referendum. It might have been called something else, but um, it was basically um, a statement um, asking the regents to divest, and then if that had passed with three or more UCs um, and gotten enough signatures, then the regents would have had to vote on it. Um, so, but it was denied because we had um, different phrasings within our um, different statements. So, but UC Santa Barbara was really supportive and our own campus was really supportive of that as well. So there is support um, from individual UCs, but it comes down to the regents needing to vote on it. So UC these are wide. the supreme beings that need to be convinced <laughs> that climate change is real and they shouldn't support you know, fossil fuels. Yeah. Um, have you gotten a read from the existing regents? And isn't there a student regent as well? Mm -hmm. Does that person, uh, someone you can talk to, they don't even have a vote, right? The student regent. I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, I, don't, I wouldn't believe so. That's but too bad. What I came away with after our presentation to the subcommittee of investments meeting um, was that we didn't really need to convince anyone that climate change was real. Um, I think we're, we're pretty much on the same page about that. But we needed to convince them and bring attention to if, if our investment in fossil fuels aligned with the morals of the UC and the values of the UC. Um, so I think that's more of the argument that we are trying to make. And is there a statement of values of the UC system that, that you could go on down a checkbox and say, well, actually, <laughs> this does or does not align? Has, have you found that statement to be able to make that argument? Well, I think the UC sees itself as a leader in progressiveness and innovation, um, and that's something that's been said before. Um, Certainly their climate scientists are some of the best in the world, mm. so there's that, right? <laughs> that these people who are telling us what's happening to our planet are inside the UC system. Mm -hmm. They are the preeminent scientists, yeah. some of them in it's the It's a field. bit hypocritical, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Or at least just interesting that their own research is becoming, you know, very famous and mm -hmm. at the same time maybe not aligning with their practices financially. It always goes back to put your money where your mouth is, right? <laughs> yeah, def definitely. If I can add something really fast, I think it's important what Tonya said that we don't have to convince the regions that climate change is an issue. Most of them know, a few of them are openly sympathetic, but the issue is actually getting them to divest the money, actually getting them to do action. And I feel like that's a phenomenon that's apparent beyond just the UC system. A lot of people realize climate change is an issue, but what do you do about it? Actually finding the action, even if you know what the action is and actually doing it, can be the hardest thing because we still do rely on a fossil fuel energy economy. We rely on fossil fuels for a lot of parts of our daily lives. So it's really challenging. You know, you have people who recognize this issue, but do not want to make direct action upon the issue because openly divesting all the money in fossil fuels would disrupt their profits and the success of the UC system. So it's a really deep social issue that's based on so much more. In a lot of ways, even people with some power are almost kind of tied with an economic system that doesn't lend to acting on it. How much money have, have they, have you, uh, anyone calculated how much they would lose if they, they're not talking about giving away $2.8 billion or $6 billion. They're just talking about moving it to a different... Renewables. Right, to, to investing in something else, right? So they're not, you're not asking them to give that money away. Right. Uh, just maybe take a slightly less lucrative investment in solar, although I imagine solar could be quite lucrative mm -hmm. too. It has been studied that it actually would be more lucrative to invest in renewables because um, investments in the fossil fuel industry are pretty risky and it wouldn't damage their portfolios at all. We have studied that. Um, so 
yeah, it would it wouldn't be irresponsible financially. And if it if that's actually true that it wouldn't hurt them financially, that actually they would perhaps get a better return off of renewables. What's their motivation for holding on to it? That's hard to understand. I think it's daunting to make that change. Maybe um, you sure or it's maybe not political is, where they say, "Well, we're giving in to pressure groups, so we have to hold firm." Um, I haven't gotten that just from our conversations with Jagdeep and the regents. I I think it would be more of a timing thing. Um, but yeah. Yeah, definitely. From what I have heard from the regents and the chief investment officer is that they want to divest this money very slowly so it's economically responsible and not a risky transfer of investments. So from an economic perspective, they're wanting to do this very relatively subtly over a period of time when they can and when they can make money off selling their investments in fossil fuels. Hmm. As students, how do you guys put pressure on the regents to you know, take those steps maybe more quickly than they want to? How do you guys go about with your club, like getting awareness on the campus and trying to put pressure on these entities to make change? Um, we do a various amount of things. We, um, we set up meetings like, like the one we had with Jagdeep, um, which is where he, he told us that we could have a seat at the subcommittee of investments meeting. So that was really exciting, especially because that was so recent. Um, before that, we had mostly been speaking at public comment at the regents meetings. Um, and then as far as on campus goes, we have various trainings and workshops um, for people within our club, but also to try and um, get other people involved or uh, collaborate with other sustainability organizations. Um, so yeah, talking about big picture goals um, and issues is really important for strengthening our own knowledge within the club. Um, and we had a training um, this past Thursday, actually, that I facilitated um, talking about just transition. Um, so that was really good in solidifying why we organize um, for our club. We saw during the 60s and 70s a lot of big protests, sit-ins, occupation of buildings during the Vietnam protests. Mm -hmm. How is your movement or what you're doing different or similar in terms of what you use as far as tools and public education and protest type of activities. What are you doing or not doing? Perhaps that might be different. Um, yeah, in a lot of ways it's similar. In a lot of ways it's very different. I would say in some cases we do employ kind of these classic uh, grassroots activism techniques. We've had a few direct actions on campus more of as an attempt to continue to wear, raise awareness on our own campus and get more students interested. Uh, and then in other ways, we are almost working within the system a little bit more, even by directly communicating with the regions, communicating with these decision makers to, you know, divest the money in a little more within the system of our modern you know, capitalist investments and economics, it's not, it's not overly radical. I think it's totally realistic and totally responsible of the UC to divest their money. You're, you're bringing up a really interesting issue because <laughs> on the one hand, you know, the pressure you might bring to bear politically uh, is to make a lot of noise. And does that get you into the room? And then when you get into the room and you're super polite and there's no pressure, you're just a small group of people making mm -hmm. a sensible argument that they can blow off. I'm thinking back to some of the really um, explosive protests over social media recently against companies. You know, when people went, oh, you know, through the Me Too movement, they find out a company is, you know, being sexist or the Starbucks, they immediately had a crisis on their hands because the public reacted hugely because it was so public. This doesn't have that flashpoint right, like those other things do where people literally will boycott something massively and it impacts the company. Yeah. If mean, you had something like that happen, it would be different, but you don't have it because it's a slow-moving mm -hmm. kind of an issue. And everyone is so involved. I mean, we're not going to get a bunch of UC students to stop paying tuition because it's funding fossil fuels. Um, I mean, 
Yeah, but we, we definitely should try and draw attention to, to it through direct action as well. You want to tell folks what kinds of, you said you did some direct action. What did that look like? What was it that you did? Yeah, I can talk a bit more. Maybe I slightly misspoke earlier. We are working with the system, but in a lot of ways, we're also challenging the system in the sense that we are students who are using their privilege and relative position of power as students to leverage even more powerful people such as the regents. So I would say in many ways, we are radical. We are disrupting these very institutionalized power structures. Um, but I would say our direct action stuff last year when I joined uh, Fossil for UC, we did one march on campus uh, where we rallied a bunch of students at the Quarry Plaza and marched to the base of campus where we had a teach-in and actually put up a, a banner over the UCSC sign uh, temporarily drawing attention to the fact that the UC had $2.8 billion invested in fossil fuels. Um, that was one of the most exciting uh, actions we had last year. We did another direct action at a, or a committee, a subcommittee of investments meeting last year where we brought a banner um, directly uh, confronting Regent Sermon that said, Sherman, which side are you on? Um, and we were outside, you know, relatively quiet, but still, still there, still getting our voices heard outside the, um, the Regent office. You sometimes saw people, I mean, over the years, there's been protests that directed at the Regents where people would get into a Regents meeting and yell and be mm -hmm. escorted from the room. And, you know, you see that sometimes happen. We definitely chant during public comment. <laughs> <laughs> you make some noise. Yeah, I've got a question about who are the Regents answerable to? I mean, for example, if the governor of California, does he have any authority over the Regents? Who actually has authority over the Regents? How are they chosen? And are they answerable to the public in the sense that political um, power could, you know, or political influence somehow could affect their decisions? Um, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I wish another one of our um, group's members was here, which is really knowledgeable about that stuff. Um, but the specific detail about the governor, I would love to research more about that. I know personally I don't have that exact piece of information, but I remember one of our group members was looking into that, and it's a really interesting avenue, mm -hmm. um, especially. Yeah, I don't know if you know more about that. I don't know more about that, but our campaign has a power mapping subcommittee that neither of us are actually on, but I think that's a really important uh, question and like something that we do need to look into, and that's why we have the subcommittee. Um, because, yeah, it is important to know, like, who the regents answer to. And we would like it to be the students, and that's probably why they have a public comment section of their meeting. Um, but in a lot of cases, that's not always the case. I have a little bit of information about that. They're, the majority of the 18 regents is appointed via nomination by the governor and confirmed by the Senate to a 12-year term. So they way go, on, go beyond the existing governor's yeah. term. <laughs> so unless That's the governor's so reelected many you know you can only have so many terms so yeah they're there for a long time wow <laughs> 12 years is quite a bit of time if you're sitting there and there's been some controversy over connections between um federal people like diane feinstein and one of the regents there was those are old stories but so yeah the remaining seven are ex officio which means they can't vote. So there's a lot of complexity, but it, it's definitely um, their terms go way beyond the governor's existence in the governor's mansion. So we'll have a new governor this year, and we'll see what happens then. If he gets any open seats, you might be wanting to leverage he or she, um, whoever gets in the governor's seat. If they have a, a seat or two, maybe that person will be uh, asked questions when they're running. And you'll have time because the primaries this week coming up. Please vote, all you Californians, anyway. Please do vote because we are voting for the primary uh, for governor and there's four people that are kind of the leading candidates on one side and I think there's two on the other that are leading the polls. So there'll be some people to vote for and, and learning about their positions on this one issue might be a good thing for groups to do and all of us who are voting to do. If you just joined us, this is Planet Watch. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. I'm in the studio with Maya Rodriguez 
and a whole host of other people, including Steve Coulter, who teaches at the University of California, Santa Cruz. He's also my husband, by <laughs> disclosure. <laughs> I'm not paying him to be here, <laughs> except with some good dinners. Um, and Tonya Brito-Bursi and Liam Roof from Fossil Free UC. They're very active in their campus, and there are many other campuses across the UC system that are pushing for this divestment of 2.6 billion, with a B, dollars. Um, so, and if you have a question for them, we have just a few minutes before Joe Jordan calls in. He's going to be doing some cosmic relief. Um, but last thoughts before we get Yeah, there. so there are other campuses both around the country and around the world that have I divested. You want to talk a little bit about the successes at those and where that's happened? And Yeah, um, I, can, I have a list right here of other places that I've divested because this is a global movement. I don't know if you've heard of 350.org is another divestment um, campaign, um, as well as Fossil Free uh, UC and across the country. Um, so some places that I've divested are University of Edinburgh, Ireland, Berlin, Stockholm, Paris, Oslo, San Francisco, Seattle, Stockholm University, and University of Hawaii. And most recently, New York City has divested. And if you want to find out more about them, you can go to gofossilfree.org. Um, so this is something that works, and it's really important for the UC to stick to its morals and also divest and join that list. If people want to learn more about your organization, if there are students listening, perhaps, mm -hmm. um, how would they get involved with your organization? Well, um, if you're a UC student or a UCSC student or really anyone who's interested in the community here locally, you could come to one of our general meetings, which are on Friday in McHenry Library at 5 o'clock p.m., um, or you could go to our Facebook page. If you pull up Facebook and search Fossil Free UC, you should find our page there. We're also on Instagram. Um, and I think that's about it. Yeah, our meetings are above the cafe in McHenry Library. <laughs> well, I hope you keep us informed, and I want to thank you both for being here with us on Planet Watch. Yeah, thank you so much. Great. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> All right, and we have Joe Jordan from the road joining us. Hi, Joe. Hi, can you hear me okay? So far, so good. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm actually stationary now. I'm uh, over uh, kind of in the middle of the hot Central Valley at the base of the Sierra. I'm charging up my uh, all-electric car, even though its range, its battery range is advertised as about 250 miles, and I've had it even farther than that. When you go up 8,000 feet, which I'm about to do, that cuts way down on the mileage. So I I probably should have looked up how much you lose per thousand feet of elevation, but I'm going to do the experiment, and I hope I don't get strained. Well, you know, if, if I end up, you know, uh, three miles from where I've got to get to up at Kirkwood Lake tonight uh, and, and out of juice, all I do is I turn the car around and I roll back down the mountain until I get to some place where I can charge the car back up for a while. But I'm hoping to get up there before sunset, so I don't want to take all day charging. I generally can get about 15 miles per hour of charging on a 240-volt uh, so-called level 2 outlet. If I can find one of the DC fast-charge level 3 outlets, I can charge the whole damn thing up in half an hour. Isn't there uh, an app for that that would show you where all the charging stations in California well, are? Well, yeah, my app is not showing any level 3. However, it's, um, I don't think it is the best uh, source for that info. Uh, i got to go to some other company that has most of those level 3 chargers. There are not very many of those. It's so funny when you talk to promoters of electric cars, they're like, yeah, you can drive anywhere and for a really long time, but they're not really telling you that we're not quite there yet, that you can't just zip <laughs> off to the Sierras like this and expect <laughs> well, to get there. Gonna, <laughs> this, this might be uh, my friend who has a cabin there on the lake says this may be the very first time an EV has ever been at Kirkwood Lake. So we'll just see if I uh, hope, hoping to make it and still have an hour or so to revel in the sunlight uh, before the sun goes down. Well, we hope <laughs> but, you uh, make it too. And, and I hope um, you get to listen to the program um, on our podcast after we run it. Um, and, and this is podcast, by the way, all you listeners at Planet Watch Radio. Um, so look that up, dot com, dot com, dot com. and you can get our, yeah, well, you, subscribe there and get all of our issues that you missed. So um, if well, you know, I, I was actually I was actually listening. Believe it or not, the AM signal <laughs> of the station uh, extended out into the valley, wow. and also that where it didn't, I I got the free KSCO app for uh -huh. iPhone, and, and you can actually listen live. So, but um, 
couple little things to report on um, here. Uh, we are going to have, um, well, <laughs> something happened a few days ago, uh, a couple nights ago, actually. A small asteroid apparently hit somewhere in South Africa, and it was actually caught on video. And it was only discovered a few hours earlier by astronomers, so it's lucky it wasn't a bigger asteroid. However, of course, if it had been bigger, it probably would have been discovered sooner. But anyway, uh, so, you know, it is a shooting gallery out there. <laughs> Just keep an, eye, keep an eye on the sky, as I always say. Um, oh, by the way, a fun fact about 8,000 feet of elevation, uh, a train is going by right now. I don't know if you can hear those deep bass tones, a freight train in the background. But anyway, when you get up to 8,000 feet of elevation, uh, you're above about a third of the atmosphere. Uh, so the sun looks actually quite a bit brighter. You can actually measure it as brighter because you're above a third of the air. Now, so you might say, well, wait a minute. Does that mean the atmosphere is only 24,000? That is three times 8,000 feet high? Well, no, because it keeps getting thinner and thinner the farther up you go. So that second third of the atmosphere is going to be far taller than another 8,000 feet. And then the last third up until outer space goes way out many miles. So anyway, um, Mars is getting to be a, if you're a, an early bird, like up before dawn or a real night owl, uh, you know, Mars is rising about midnight now and it's headed for a spectacular, super bright, brighter than it's been in 15 years, brighter than since 2003. And it's this, the angry red planet was this movie we saw when I was a kid and it scared the heck out of my little brother. But, um, anyway, it's looking fiery orange, uh, it was near the moon last night. We'll be again sort of tonight, and the moon will move on farther to the east. But it's, uh, it's headed for a great, uh, super bright time in July, end of July. And uh, Venus, uh, if you look in the west, you can't miss that. And it's lining up with the Gemini twins, Castor and Pollux. And the Gemini twins, uh, in about a week, it'll be perfectly lined up with those. But you can watch how it changes from night to night. Right now it's down to the left of them. And the, the Gemini twins are like a pair of eyes, left and right, staring at you out of the uh, western sky. Uh, just checking here. Am I still on the air? Uh, yes, you're monologuing okay. just fine, Joe. <laughs> okay, good, good. What time is it? My, my, my clock went off here. Uh, it's it's we got about... uh, on Pacific time. It's 5.53, but that's not correct. That's Eastern time. <laughs> it's oh, 2.53 well, if you are in the West Coast, but I think you're still yeah. in our time zone. I haven't, I haven't driven that far in this electric car. I'm still in the <laughs> Pacific time zone, so we still got a few minutes. Yeah, so so welcome to June, everybody. Um, in French, uh, they call that juin, J-U-I-N, juin. And I bet you one of the people in the studio there can tell us what it is en espagnol. I think I know, but maybe somebody can chime in. Or maybe I'll let our listeners look it up. Uh, maybe anyway, that'll be the quiz um, for next week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so uh, here's another one. Jupiter. You can't miss that either. In fact, long about 9.30 or 10 o'clock, uh, Jupiter's as high in the eastern sky as Venus is in the western sky. They're not quite opposite each other, but they're just amazing beacons of light. And Jupiter is right near the brightest star in the constellation of Libra, which is one of the zodiac signs. So if you were born along about October, you're a Libra, and that means that in October, the sun is in front of the constellation Libra, in the constellation, in the way of it. So you can't see Libra in October, but you can see it now, and it's the brightest of its two main stars that are almost exactly the same brightness, actually, uh, is right next to Jupiter for this next week or so. So if you want to know half of Libra, just look at Jupiter, and you'll see this other star right next to it, and that will be uh, Libra. And in fact, Libra, the scales, you know, the scales, like weighing things, like equal justice, you know, well, the name of uh, the scales is because those two stars are almost exactly the same brightness, uh, the two stars of Libra. So it's like, uh, you know, equal, uh, weighed out in equal measure. <laughs> so uh, you'll see Jupiter creeping by that um uh, relatively bright star in Libra, although it's nowhere near as bright as Jupiter itself. So um, another fun fact to notice here in the next uh, few days is that we are approaching the earliest sunrise of the year, at least for all of us here in North America. And you say, well, wait a minute, isn't that on the solstice, the 21st of June? No, it's not. <laughs> you can check your newspapers or whatever sources you have for sunrise and sunset times. And you'll find out that the earliest sunrise actually happens about a week before the solstice, like about June 14th, 
And then a week after the solstice, we will have the latest sunset. And I can talk later as those dates approach about why that is, but uh, basically it has to do with the ellipticity of our orbit around the sun. We're not going around the sun in a perfect circle, rather an ellipse and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> blah, but, blah, uh, blah. That's not a radio term, is it? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a scientific term. <laughs> I thought so. Hey, Joe, since you're going across the Central Valley and into the Sierra, um, we have had a couple of news stories about the pine forests of the and the evergreen forests of the Sierra and all of western United States enduring some uh, beetle die-off on a massive scale. Have you, I guess, since you haven't been up there recently, you haven't seen it yet, but if you would report back, we'd be curious just a eye observation what you're seeing and um, what did you see when you crossed the Central Valley as far as agriculture? Is it in the middle of its uh, planting season right now? Are you seeing a lot of activities? Yeah, although, um, you know, sometimes on Sunday you don't see as much as you do on other days. Uh, I have to tell you, in Sierra, we have I have another friend with a cabin that's right in Kings Canyon National Park, and hopefully Rachel and Steve are, are going to make it up there. Uh, they, they know these folks, too. And uh, around there, the, the trees are really, you know, a fire hazard, it looks like to me. There's all these patches of red in these once evergreen trees. It's really sad, and... Uh, However, here in the northern Sierra, where I'm headed, up near Carson Pass, off Route 88, uh, where uh, Kirkwood is, uh, the, there's not as much of that, or at least uh, last I looked, which was, you know, a year ago. We'll, we'll see how it looks now. I think it's better than in the farther southern Sierra, uh, but still getting worse everywhere as, uh, you know, temperatures rise and bark beetles live longer and do their damage longer and all that kind of and stuff. It, and it has a lot to do with the, the recent drought, too. So thanks for that update. Maybe when you come back, you can give us a little more um, report on what's going on in the Sierra area. And have a great trip. We want to thank you for checking in Cosmic Relief with us, as you usually do, but this time from the road. And may your electric vehicle get you all the way to where you're going. <laughs> oh, yeah, and the good news is once I get up there, all I have to do is roll all the way back down, and I get most of those miles back by regenerative uh, you know, it, it turns yeah. the car from a motor into a generator. Hey, thanks to the students. Uh, you did a great job, or former or, or recently students. I, I did listen to the show, and it was a great interview, and uh, good work, everybody. And keep an eye on the sky, and have a great week. All right. Thanks, Joe. This has been Planet Watch. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman, along with Maya Rodriguez, and we look forward to talking with you next week. Thank you so much to our Patreon patrons for supporting this program and helping us get out to other states. Your support helps spread Planet Watch to more stations. So if you'd like to help us out, go to patreon.com. Planet Watch is a production of Joe Jordan and Rachel Ann Goodman. We'll see you again next week with another fantastic interview from leading-edge scientists in the world of climate change, climate action, and everything in between. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.